Children, want to go to children's church? You don't want to hear me, do you? Yeah, go to your children's church. I love you too, yes. Fist bump, very, very lovely, yes. A church with kids is a church with life, isn't it? I hope you at least vicarious like the little ones. I do. The last two Saturdays, I was so hot, my, my grandkids had to come up. They're all under five because they have no air conditioning in the, uh, in the house they live in. And uh, boy, you, it, it, it kind of wrecks your whole week because... Uh, <laughs> but isn't it great? <laughs> I mean, we're two weeks behind in everything. And they're just, uh, they tore the place up. It was, one, it was wonderful. They go out and they collect eggs with grandma. Here, collect an egg, huh? In the bucket. <laughs> it's great. Okay, I'm avoiding what I have to do here. Um, Gunner got me and said, hey, would I mind taking a section? I'm always happy to teach out of the Bible if I can. That's great. Unfortunately, he gave me a sin section. And I want, I want a joy section. You know, it's like he gets to be the good guy, I have to be the bad guy. But that's not really the case. Uh, John's going to talk to us today about how we can avoid sin, how we can stay out of sin. I would like to not sin. Would you like to not sin? Um, I feel like today he almost does that Bob Newhart thing, you know, it's like, well, stop it. <laughs> you want to not sin? Well, don't. Well, it doesn't really do much for me. Anyways, that's me. Um, also, I'll, I'll preload this. Um, I, I know something about uh, how to teach a group, and I, there's a few things you don't do. Number one, you don't say, I'm not really prepared today. I am prepared. But you don't uh, do the first person I. I have to tell you when we're talking about sin, um, I will use the first person I a lot. Uh, because I'm the guy with the problem. If you are so inclined to come along on my journey and you relate somehow to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and wanting your life to be something uh, more uh, appropriate than it personally is, then jump on board. You're in good company. Otherwise, you're going to think, gosh, Michelle is a real sinner for a husband, and that's fine too. Um, I feel like saying the uh, views expressed today are not necessarily the views of this church, the Bible, or of uh, Michelle Johnson, but hopefully they are. Okay. There is a certain, oh, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We're in 1 John, a book that um, is very, very challenging, as simple as it is. And um, it, it is our great desire to have some communion, some connection with you. It's each of our great desire to have a word today that would impact some real situation that we're dealing with that maybe nobody even knows about. You have a way of doing that. It's our great desire to hear something out of the word of God and not just from the guy with the mouth up here. And we pray that you would speak. Uh, as the voice today, and uh, you would control what's heard and what's said, and we ask for that to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a certain wisdom to scheduling a speaker on a day that his wife and daughter are teaching children's church. I've been told I will not go long this morning. <laughs> they said I get 30 minutes, and that's it. I said, yes, dear. And then my daughter reiterated, and I said, aye, aye, sir. Um, it's certainly not by accident that the day that our adult Sunday school wrapped up their study of First John, our church started the sermon series on First John. Apparently, God wants us to participate in this book of First John. And I will tell you, for 40 years, I have avoided this book because I started with this book as a new Christian, and um, it's, it's a difficult book. Um, Gunner began to teach, uh, let's see... Uh, when I personally made the choice to trust Jesus, when I became a Christian many years ago, First uh, John was the book used to um, disciple or instruct or follow up a big group of us young Navy guys that were just coming to church and trying to find things out. And they used a lot of 
uh, verses out of 1 John. And in my, in my ignorance, I saw 1 John as an entry-level Christian book. And, but I found, and, and Gunnar uh, mentioned this uh, thought in, in the weeks prior, that 1 John really ranks high up there in the simple, difficult, simply difficult books of the Bible. It's easy to read. The words are really easy. Very few verses. You can read through this in one sitting. I actually hope you will. Um, but there are, and there's some very powerful verses, even memory verses. I mean, 1 John 1, 9, who doesn't know that? You know, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you hung your hat on that verse? Isn't that great? These are great verses. There are several others, and I'm not going to go into them now. But in its simplicity, uh, 1 John has some bare bones, light and dark truths that cause us to evaluate the consistencies and inconsistencies in our own personal faith walk. Very challenging. First John deals with um, actions and then motives hidden behind those actions. Uh, the, who we really are behind our public Christian face. You know that face you put on before you come to church and decide to smile. It, it, it really, it really uh, uh, brings out who we really are. And for me, First John tells me where I'm slacking in my faith journey, where my challenges really are. And still, it, it, it tells us what can, we can do to make a course correction. It's not there to beat us up. It's there to free us and help us get back on track. Uh, recall that back in 1 John 1, 4, John tells us, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. John pours out this wisdom into others so it completes his joy. And it really begs the question, is it possible is it possible that a Christian could be joyless? Could you have a joyless Christian? Have you met one? Have you been one? It's certainly a possibility. If joy can be complete, then joy can also be incomplete. And if you're one who has found that your faith walk is not bringing you joy, like the Bible describes, John actually has the cure. Well, that excites me. Now, Pastor Gunner has already spoken of our need to embrace truths presented thus far. Um, there is a God who made himself known. We've learned that. Sin is a very real problem in each of us. We've learned that. Uh, one will not have joy until they accept the forgiveness of sin and the cleansing from all unrighteousness through Jesus Christ. We've learned that. Basic, solid truths. But past that, John tells us that sin continues to be a very real and present problem for the one who has accepted Jesus' cleansing. It's so much easier to take these books and say, well, that's talking about non-Christians. And no, this is about Christians. 1 John 2, 1, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John's giving us something so that we may not sin. Imagine a life where you may not sin. Imagine getting there where you're not sinning. And while sin promises us an opportunity... Is any, can anybody here actually relate to sin? Is it just, okay, you know what I'm talking about, right? Okay. Sin promises us an opportunity to be happy, to get our own way, and to get ahead. But sin actually is our chief joy robber. It ultimately steals our joy, our vitality. And as we enter 1 John 2, 3 and following, John gives us a plumb line test so that we can truly know if we know Jesus. John wants us to be able to to walk in the light while living in this sinful world. A plumb line, do you know Jesus? Well, John says, let's do a test here. 1 John 2, 3 says, here's the plumb line. 
1 John 2, 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Oi. If we keep his commandments. Phrases like that make me feel uncomfortable. Make me, it's a very difficult phrase for me. I, I can't genuinely say that I keep God's commandments perfectly. Perfectly. And still, what are his commandments? Well, is it the Ten Commandments? I've had many people tell me, well, I don't really need Jesus, but I follow the Ten Commandments, to which I always follow up with, oh, name them. And most people get five or six of those commandments before they stumble. They're not really keeping the Ten Commandments, no matter what they tell themselves. Jesus' commandments are not the Jewish Mosaic law, the thing we see back in um, Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. They're not the Ten Commandments here. And rather, this is most probably a reference to another book written by the Apostle John, the Gospel of John. And there, in the Gospel of John, John 13, 34, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. I believe that's the commandment he's talking about. And we can safely expand that to Jesus' words um, in Matthew 22, where the teacher says, hey, well, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, well, here it is. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In this, everything is wrapped up. So I believe that's what's going on here, keeping his commandment. It has to do with loving, on, loving God and loving on others. So, with that plumb line, do you know Jesus? Challenging. And I immediately I cry out, Lord, I, I, know, I know that I know Jesus, but I know that I have not perfectly adhered to the law of love. I've fallen short. What's a person like me to do? Well, experience tells me if I just read the next few verses, it might answer the question. Verse 4, this ought to fix everything. Ready? Verse 4, 1 John 2, 4. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not him. Ouch. That didn't help me, did it? It makes it worse. Okay, verse 5. But whoever keeps his, his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. If his word is truly perfected in me, I know that I know him. Truly been perfected. This is not some hodgepodge, good enough is good enough standard. This is perfection. And what does that look like? Verse 6, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner that he's walked. Okay, now I have something I, I could put my arms around. I have some ray of hope walking the way Jesus walked. I have an example of what it looks like. We should walk in the same way that Jesus walked. And so it makes sense that God gave us four biographies describing how Jesus walked. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You read those, you will see how Jesus walked. Okay, that's great. Yes, we need to read those too. John takes on the Christian life. The, the life lived in a God-pleasing manner is not really a new substance, but it's really new in focus. Verse 7, Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. This old commandment is the word 
which you have heard. And on the other hand, verse 8, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So God's gold standard of loving others has really been around since the creation of time. Unfortunately, it's almost always showcased in the negative. In the beginning, Cain killed Abel. That was an example of not loving his brother, right? We know those times. We see those things happen. But the standard's been around there. Thus far, this passage has not really helped me to reclaim my joy. It hasn't fixed things. Rather, it's quite convicting. But then John shifts focus in verse 8. Darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. What do, you, what do you do when you see a light shining? You look at it, right? To live the joy-filled life of one who knows Jesus, we must focus not on our failures, but rather on the light. That's his key. We focus on the light. This is a practical, pragmatic, boots-on-the-ground book. And this is really true across the board. You're driving on the road and you see some, you see some um, hazard in front of you. You don't avoid that hazard by looking at the hazard. You look at the safe way you want to go, right? You focus on the good thing. In the same way, because we have an advocate who has not only paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future, but is also sticking up for us advocating for us whenever the enemy says, ah, look what he did, look what she did, and Jesus is saying, not guilty, I've paid for that. Because of that, we can focus on the light. We can blow off the failures, ignore those things, and move forward. You mean when? Like 10 minutes after you do it and you feel really bad, or 30 minutes after you whip yourself? No, you get back up. Though we fall seven times, a righteous man gets back up. We get back up and focus on the light. Now, quiz time from 1 John uh, one one five that Gunnar preached, who is the light? God, very good. Focus on the light. Let's keep reading verse 9. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. As you rub shoulders here at Grace Point, it really is evident who is walking in the light. You know those who love on you. You know those who just kind of like exude Jesus all prickly all over them? I mean, there's some really special people here, and you're drawn to them. You gravitate towards those. And the trick is, according to John, is to reciprocate that same behavior, to love on others as you have been loved on. John says, well, this we share this with you so our joy may be made complete. As you pour yourself into others, that's really the key to your joy being made complete. People have to be involved. The trick then is to reciprocate, uh, sharing with others what has made John complete and makes you complete. And as a byproduct of this teaching, we learn that in order to know God, to, to abide in the light, we must be involved with people. Aye. Investing in others is the key to being joyful. But listen, people are difficult. It would be so easy to be a pastor if there were no people involved. I would be a doctor if it wasn't for sick people. You see, I mean, it's, it's this is really the way it is. Now, last week, Gunnar showed us that uh, in verse 3, he says, so that you too may have fellowship with us, is speaking about having them having fellowship with God. 
He wants you to have fellowship with God. It's a, some say it's a word order thing, but I think it's actually a, a practical step here. A person has to have fellowship with God before they can have fellowship with others. And what we do is we have socialization with others. There's nothing wrong with that. But we get along with people with whom we get along. Guilty as charged. That's what we do. That's the way we are. We want to be around people that make us feel comfortable, people that we like. If you want to be around people that don't make you feel comfortable and people who you normally don't think you would like, you have to be in tune with God first. This is the one another of which John speaks. So we can't put the cart before the horse. We have to pour ourselves in a relationship with the light, with God, before we can sincerely pour ourselves into others. And the joy should reciprocate. So gatherings like Supper 8 can actually be a distraction from true fellowship if God's not really in it. I just like the people I'm with and the food. I mean, do you invite God to your Supper 8? I hope you do. Because Supper 8s can also be a springboard to get to know each other and partake in people's lives and pour yourself into them. And that said, the context exhorts us that we probably do not have fellowship with God if we don't have fellowship with others. It's just that simple. The Christian hermit is not really biblical. I'm not putting down shut-ins. That's not the issue here. But those who by choice would rather live on their three acres in their grove alone and just work in their shop and ignore people, I shouldn't be that way. Okay. But what about the other phrase that we're skipping here? He says, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. These aren't poetic words to pass over. The way I read this, it is possible for I, a Christian, can be a stumbling block in the lives of others. That's a sobering thought. That's a frightening thought. Uh, We're warned by Jesus. He doesn't say Christian or non-Christian when he says this. He says, but whoever, whoever, causes one of these little ones to believe, uh, who believe in me to stumble. It is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, a word on allegorical, example-type writing. Whenever somebody in the Bible gives you a, a, an example like this, he doesn't really mean a millstone around your neck and drown But when he tells you something like that, whatever he's talking about is greater or worser than what he's saying. It's really bad to make a Christian stumble. God takes it personal. And you, my friends, are his little ones. I don't want to make you stumble. Alistair Begg was talking this last couple weeks at his pastor's conference on the issue of the teacher being under harsher, stricter judgment. Let not many of you stand up here like, gosh, that just beats me up. I know Gunner takes that real seriously. He's sober about that. I hope I am too, but my life doesn't show it, I don't think. As, as, I, as I live the lesson in preparation for today, First John has impressed me, impressed upon me that, that my sin really interrupts fellowship with God. It's a real problem. And I trust this isn't a rabbit trail. I'll share about myself a little bit. As I prepared... I was having some, some grove time with God. I have this little place I go in my grove. And you see, uh, several of us are listening to this R.C. Sproul teaching 
uh, called Foundations. It's 60 lessons on something and on, on what we believe. And, and I was in lesson number last, and, and it really struck me. R.C. spoke about in heaven we'll actually see God. And we talked about how difficult is spirit, what does that mean and such. I don't know, but we'll actually see God. And I was moved by the reference, blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. And while I'm many things, I fear that I am not pure in heart. That's probably not going to be on my tombstone, pure in heart. And I really spent growth time considering this. I said, Lord, I, I really do want to be pure in heart. I, don't, I had to articulate that. I want to be pure in heart. It was a decision. I would like to be that person. So what gets in the way? Well, well, my job, certainly. Yeah, my job. I mean, I'm exposed to many impure things as I investigate some really heinous crimes. And I like it. I like what I do. But I suppose it could be that. Or, But if God is present, he must be present in the darkest holes of life or he's not really God. You see, God's right there. I can't just avoid the really bad things in life as we're doing our job, ministry, whatever. And certainly without other people, it would be easy to be pure in heart, right? But John tells us that God is pleased when we love one another. Yes, I I could be more easily to love those who were pure in heart. So if I was around people who were pure in heart, I could be pure in heart. That'd be good. That'd be good. Is that how Jesus walked? He just looked for the pure in heart? Not at all. He showed love to those who were not pure in heart. He said it was the sick who needed a doctor. That's who he went after. The one who walks in the same manner Jesus walked will love those who are not yet pure in heart. Have people ever burned you? Yeah, this is a minefield. And still, I I have trouble having fellowship with those who are not like-minded. Anyone else struggle with this? I mean, people are difficult, aren't they? And Jesus' answer, John's direction here, is that to have fellowship with those who are not yet pure in heart requires that one first have fellowship with God. As Gunnar pointed out last week, we must walk in the light. Verb, we must walk in the light. It's not a phrase, it's not a poetry. We must walk, it's an active choice, an active experience. And John tells us that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness. So, in the arena of, in what arena of darkness are you called to dwell? Are you navigating through the educational system of this state? That's challenging. Are you serving clients who tend to be a bit fickle or not like-minded, but you want to make the sale? How about the challenging whims of a parent with whom you share custody of a child? That's a difficult arena. And perhaps you find darkness in your own extended family. Who avoids family gatherings? Yeah. (laughs) If we're to operate with purity in the dark holes of this world, we must regularly immerse ourselves in the light. So let me ask you, how much of your time is pre-devoted to having fellowship with God. I mean, break out the calendar on your phone and show me the blocks of time 
that you have set aside to say, I take no calls, I spend time with God during this time. That's what we're talking about. This is serious business, spending time with God. You see, 1 John is a very difficult book. A very difficult book for people like me, who are not serious about, who, who don't really mean business about walking in purity. And that's what the book's shown me. John, you're not that serious. <laughs> right there, a couple days ago, I'm working on this sermon, and I had to stop and go out in the grove and talk to God about this. This is a very convicting book. I hope it is for you as well. Okay, again, verses 10 and 11. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not even know where he is going because darkness has blinded him. Understand that John is not writing this to beat us up. He wants to build us up. Verse two one again, he tells us, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. This is a build-up book, but he's got to deal with the heart of it, the problem, before he deals with the good stuff. So hence, he gives us a word of encouragement. Three verses, 12, 13, and 14. Almost poetry here. Read it with me. Uh, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. John acknowledges several truths in that encouraging poetic statement. Note that there are phases in the Christian journey. There are phases The most basic truth, little children, the most basic truth is that your sins are forgiven. You can call it a baby step. I call it a foundation. Your sins are forgiven. No matter what else happens in life, no matter what your struggles take you, no matter what stupid choice you make that now you're suffering the consequences, you can always go back and hear, your sins are forgiven. I need that. So when you miss the mark as an adult Christian, he calls it here fathers. We can always fall back on that. And maturity is not found in our great feats of spiritual strength. But maturity is found in knowing God. That's the mark of maturity. The young men here have overcome the evil one. Note that the strength, their strength is found in the Word of God, the Bible. They have a grasp on the Bible, and it empowers them to do something. And as you chew on these three verses of encouragement in your private time, because we're just scratching the surface, I think you'll draw even more truths out here. It's a wonderful, uh, encouraging section that John gives us. And the timing of the section is so appropriate. I mean, I've been beat up, and now he encourages. It's as if John knows that his words have struck a chord and, and have caused the weight of sin to be magnified in our own life. And that's a good place to be. It's a good thing to know. Wow, I am not there yet. I'm a sinner. Or maybe that's just me. But John doesn't want to smash us. We are his little children. He tells us that several times in the book. Little children. But still, about the sin problem. What's going on here? What's really going on here? 
Certainly sin breaks fellowship with God and breaks fellowship with others. But why does sin still plague me? John explains to us that in this case, our problem with sin is not that leftover sin nature that you're wrestling with, nor is it simply a matter of exposure to sinful environments that have corrupted you. At the core of my personal sin, according to John, is really an issue of love. What do I love? That's the issue. The principle here is this. We will always be drawn to that which we love. We will always be drawn to that which we love. And thus John exhorts us to direct our love appropriately. Verse 15, 16, and 17. Probably your memory verse here. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Cool. We have two choices. Love of the world or love of the Father. It's just that simple. You can't have both. Of course, John is not speaking of the world in terms of the earth. The world here is used to describe the system or the culture in which what we call the world, and that's made plain in verse 16. He says, all that is in the world, and he tells you, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. And we can list specific sins that fall into the three categories and explore those things, but as many times as I've done that, it's not been very helpful. The fact is that there's always a crossover in this. The lust of the flesh covers everything from this desire to flirt to the desire for a third helping of ice cream. As well as hours spent in the gym trying to perfect the swimsuit body. That's all part of your lust. The lust of the eyes certainly involves gathering more and more stuff. I like it, I want it. But it also involves watching things that feed the flesh. It's all crossed over. The boastful pride of life involves making sure that Everyone sees all that stuff you've collected, and they think you're really special, and they get to see your swimsuit body that you've gotten in the gym. Now, is it bad to have stuff and to look good? Does Tom Ravaz have to renounce all of his meat preparation devices or his quest to master the perfect preparation of the perfect steak? No, not at all. Tom's God-given internal wiring has been used in support of loving on others and fellowship in ways that most of us don't even know. That's a great use of his gifts. Do stylish Christian women have to renounce their beauty secrets? No, you're the light to the eyes. Keep it up. It's good. So how do we gauge when our bodies, our desiring, our wiring is a problem? Well, if something's robbing you of your joy, it's probably a problem. It's an indicator. If we have trouble enjoying time alone with God because we're thinking about the other thing, it's an indicator. There's probably a reason we don't want to walk in the light. We're distracted by the things which we love. Ask God. He'll tell you. He wants you to know where you have trouble in this. You don't want Gunner directing how you should put on makeup. That's not really the issue. 
God will tell you. Just a word on love. And don't hold uh, Gunnar accountable for this. This is me. The text tells us to not love the world and to love our brothers. If it's a command, it's a choice. The sentimental, romantic idea that I have no control over who or what I love is nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Love is a choice, but it can become an addiction. And I'm not denying the powerful physiological attachments that we form for people and pets. It's something real, it's deep. But you had that choice to make that choice to love. If you have an ungodly attachment to a person or an activity or a thing, you have a choice to break free of that attachment. One does that by just making a clean break of the wrong thing. Goodbye. Walk away. Reject it. But that might hurt their feelings. And then by immersing oneself in the right things. Getting away from stuff is never a cure for the problem with stuff. You have to move towards the right stuff. You've got to replace that void with something right. And God is the right thing. John calls this walking in the light, fellowshipping with God, abiding with him, whatever words you want to use. In understanding the tug of war between the flesh and the spirit. It's simply a matter of what you feed. What you feed is what will grow. So are you feeding your flesh or are you feeding your spirit? That's the question. And if we're brutally honest, all of us have some areas where we're giving a few extra portions to that area of our flesh we kind of like. And it may seem like a small area, a private affair. Nobody knows. But all choices have consequences, both good and bad. All choices have consequences. And ultimately, feeding the flesh will always lead you to sin, will always lead you away from God, will always rob you of your joy. And many of you have told me and can tell others that you've been there. You get it. And John adds this, verse 17, the world is passing away. And also it's lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. The world is passing away pragmatically. Attachments to the world are bad investments. But a growing attachment to God lasts for the ages. It just makes logical sense. Okay. Simple book, but complex. We're called, here it is in a nutshell, we're called to love God. We do that by keeping his commands. Keeping his commands are accomplished by the way we love on other people. If we are attached to the world rather than loving people, we can actually be a stumbling block to other people. And never forget, our sins are forgiven. There's a cure. So a couple takeaways as we close here. God has called us to walk in the light while living in the world. So let me ask you, 
How will you commit to pre-planned blocks of time with God? Where have you found an atta- where have you formed an attachment with the world? And, and what will you do about it? In my experience, for some of us, something has come to mind. And now you want to say, ah, I don't want to deal with that. This is the time, folks. That's called the Holy Spirit. Don't reject him. And how will you intentionally show love this week to someone seated in this room? Your brothers, your one another's here. That's simple. That complex. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you write this so that we might not sin and so that your, their joy may be complete, so our joy may be complete. This is for our good. Um, sin is always this condemning subject. It's not about beating us up, Father. It's about building us up. You want to bring a purity into our lives that give us joy and usefulness. Help us, Lord God, each today to commit, at least in principle, if we stumble in practice, at least in principle, to say, I want to be pure. I want to know you deeply, have fellowship with my God. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.